0: We are going to be in Luke chapter 14 here in a few minutes. If you want to grab a Bible. I literally opened my Bible just out to the exact page. I've, that's never happened in my life. No, that was incredible. I'm on Luke 14. It's on page seven seven uh, 729. That's where we're going to begin. So. It's Epiphany, which is the season on the church calendar where we celebrate the moment that Jesus first encountered the Gentiles. So Jesus, being a Jew, came to expand the love of God to all people, both before him and after him for all time. It is, the kingdom has now been extended. And Epiphany uh, is celebrated in Scripture when Jesus, the first Gentiles, that meet Jesus are the Magi or the, the three wise men. And sometimes they're called in, uh, the Christmas story. It's in Matthew chapter two. It's the first time anybody encountered uh, the Jewish King Jesus. And so we celebrate epiphany through the first part of our new year in January and February. And each year we do this, we like to grab some different topics that we feel like God wants to illuminate. Uh, maybe some things that we need to experience kind of a supernatural or a spiritual epiphany In regards to and so we're going to do a bunch of different topics over the coming uh, months. Um, I've already experienced a few epiphanies this year. One happened yesterday. All right. I'm 11 years into this fatherhood thing. You'd think that I'd have a handle on this by now. Like I would have, like I would, the epiphanies would cease and I would start to kind of like figure out what the rhythm is like and the epiphanies of parenthood would start to slow down a bit not the case. So yesterday we go to a movie, took the boys to movie on Family Day. We went to see Bumblebee, which is a fun movie. And we're in line at the concession stand. Sutter's got some leftover Christmas money that he wants to spend. And he told us, he's like, I want to buy my own soda. And we've literally never let any of them do that before. So what possessed us to think, yeah, that kid can handle 64 ounces of soda. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what came over us. We're like, okay, buddy, it's your money. You can spend it. Like, n- technically, no. Well, he's under 18. We should have been more responsible. Two liter bottle. So basically, a regular size soda at the movie theater, you guys know this, it's like the equivalent of like a two-liter bottle of soda at the store. So he gets this giant thing of soda, of, of Sprite. We're in the theater. Movie starts. Ten minutes in, comes over to my chair. I gotta pee. I'm like, okay. And since I have three boys... Carrie has now like delegated all bathroom responsibilities to me. and Even though I'm like, go ahead, dude. You got it. You'll figure it out. You'll find the bathroom and find us, but that doesn't fly with her. She's a little bit more shepherding than I am, so I have to go with him. We go to the bathroom. Um, I lose him. In the, like I come out of the bathroom. I think he's, he's going to be at the sink washing his hands because we're side looking. have taught our kids to wash their hands after they go to the bathroom. No, he's gone. Not at the sink. I go outside looking all over the lobby, can't find him. So now I'm getting a little nervous and I'm kind of like speed walking around the lobby because I figured he's probably lost, wondering where I am. And then I'm like, maybe he went back to the theater even though I do not think he'd be able to find the theater because this is a big theater. So I run across the lobby, run into the theater. I look up, I see him happily munching on popcorn right next to his mom. I'm like, oh, and Carrie sees me come in and she's like, what happened? Like she's mad and I'm like, ugh. Go back to the seat. Fifteen minutes later, comes back over. I got to pee. This continued throughout the movie. Around every twenty minutes, he had to go to the bathroom. So we're going. The second time I went out, we're going. And by the way, our row was completely full. So we're going across all the people. The second time I go out, I literally put my foot inside the popcorn box and can't get it out. I am like, pff, 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 like I am shaking it. I can't bend down and reach it because the aisle's too skinny. So I've just got this popcorn bucket stuck in my foot, trying to get out of theater. This time, though, I didn't lose him in the bathroom, all right? Kept an eye on him, went back. So, not, and then also, you know those, like, recliner seats they have in the theater now, how they're paired off? They're designed for, like, couples. Well, I was coupled with a complete stranger. I, again, you'd think I would realize this when I was booking the tickets, like, up my butt next to my family and not next to, you know, coupled So every time I would get up, my butt would hit his tray, and he would have to hold all of his stuff so it wouldn't spill. I mean, it was just awkward moment after awkward moment, all because of the soda. And the epiphany was, do not let your kid get 64 ounces of soda before you go into a two-hour movie. It's not going to end well. So three weeks ago, we started the epiphany series by talking about the subject of hope. And... Um, it's going to, we're going to sprinkle this topic of hope throughout every um, sermon that we, we teach on throughout January and February. Uh, one of my hopes for you this year, is to be rescued. We need to realize our desperate need for rescue. All right. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. And the good news is an invitation has been extended to us. We have a rescuer. All right? We have a savior. So whatever Sinful entrapment we might find ourselves in, whether it's mental, spiritual, emotional, or circumstantial, we have an olive branch that is permanently extended, that's never going away. It's unconditional. We just have to reach out and grab it and admit we need to be rescued, we need to be saved. My hope is that each of us will continue to realize our need for that, that we never get Amazing truth, um, bored or above or thoughtless about that amazing truth that that we see in Scripture. And our Scripture for today that reminds us of this is a parable. It's in Luke chapter fourteen, and I'm going to read verses one through nine. It's the parable of the great banquet. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to do a little nerdy context here. So Jesus says, um, or it says, one Sabbath when Jesus went To eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. He was being carefully watched. I've got the wrong scripture. Hold on. I don't know why I put one through nine. It's not. It's Luke fourteen. Fifteen. Find it. Dramatic pause. All right, go down to verse fifteen. So skip down. Luke chapter fourteen, verse fifteen. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for now, everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. To his Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master, and then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. And then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come so that my house will be full. Jesus wants, I mean the parable, like any parable, there's surface level and then we got to dive into the context, but the king wants the house to be full. That's his desire. So when we read scripture, we got to go through these layers of time. About thousand years of tradition, culture, geography, all right, that we have to consider about the context of what is actually happening what is the meaning of this and so when i read the great parable or the great banquet parable here again um, the first question i asked myself is what's the significance of the banquet like why a banquet why does he use that uh, as an ex- as a metaphor because in this story that we see it is the uh, the banquet is the metaphor or the, the uh, olive branch that's extended from the king to the invited guests. So that is the path. Like, why banquet? Why did he choose that? Why didn't he use, like, talk about a rope or uh, a ladder or, you know, something else? Why did he use dinner? So there's the Greek word for banquet. And it's like our language. There are many different words for meals. There's lunch. There's breakfast. There's dinner. There's a meal. There's supper. You know, we've got all these different words. So in Greek, it's the same thing. There's, the, there's different words for the meal. In Greek, they carry more meaning, though. So the Greek word that is used to describe banquet here is dapnon. And I have no idea if that's pronounced like that, but we're going to go with it. Dapnon. And one particular characteristic of dapnon is when you participate in dapnon, that kind of meal, there's an assumption of a shared union between a deity and the meal. There, there is something holy that happens. So, for example, in Greek, Becky came up here to do our communion thought today so the word that is used in Greek for the Last Supper is date not so it carries very deep holy spiritual significance that kind of a dinner uh, dinner that was the dinner Jesus had with his disciples uh, before he was arrested and then crucified so when we read this particular word for banquet or dinner date not it indicates a strong union between dinner and salvation and in this particular parable salvation awaits the invited guests, but they don't go. What's the deal? So before moving on, let me clarify what we believe about salvation. Well, I should say what I believe. You can agree, you can agree to, to strict on this, but I would, I think many think salvation in scripture refers to strictly the afterlife, all right? The, that Christ's saving begins after we die. Uh, I believe that's incorrect. I think scripture reveals that salvation begins now in this life, and it continues, and it has culminated when after death. That is when we are perfected in resurrection with him. So that's the theological take of salvation. It's not something we await. It is something that can happen right now. So why would people not even go to this? Even though they accepted the original invi- invitation, the king's like, hey, I invited you, you accepted. How come you're not showing up? He sends a servant out or some. So a common theme I noticed in the parable is that someone or something has been added to their lives. Like one person added a field. They bought a field. One person added oxen. Someone got married. So there was commitments. Something was acquired. Whether it was relational or material in nature, there was something they used to get out of the invitation. So any of you parents have done that, right? You're having kids. They're a great excuse to get out of stuff, aren't they? You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, you want me to come over to that? Ah, can't. I used it yesterday. All right, to get out. I'm like, I'm going to a movie with my kids. I can't. Um, it's an easy, you know, the more, the longer we live, we typically have more relationships. We acquire more possessions extended. And that can actually hinder uh, the pathway, the olive branch the king is extending to us. So the king in this story is obviously Christ. Every human being that's ever existed or is going to exist is the invited guest. And we have to ask ourselves have we acquired something that's lessening? Our excitement or our willingness to attend the salvation banquet is what we could call it now. So this could be an addiction, it could be a compulsion, it could be an obsession, it could be maybe hardness of heart. Um, you gotta, we got to start personalizing this. Like what's what am I entrapped by? What's slowly uh, taking life away from me? And we need to admit I need to be rescued from this. So it takes some self awareness in your life humbleness to maybe listen to people who know us and say that's off in your life whether it's a spouse or a friend or a relative or a co-worker we have to be we have to realize that we are in need to be saved we need help we need to be rescued so I was talking with a friend recently who has been going through some struggles for the last few years and it's the struggles are difficult but they're not it's nothing heartbreaking I mean there there are struggles and then there is horrific circumstances and it's not that this person's facing so i gotta i'm gonna keep it anonymous and it's not anybody in restore so you can like okay who's he talking about like look around try to guess it's not anybody in restore um but who's had some difficult circumstances and i've noticed this person has really struggled emotionally and spiritually and this is not like one of my closer closest friends i have just this is from a distance kind of i can tell like You're having a really hard time with this, aren't you? And so it's it's pretty obvious. So I had, throughout a a couple of, you know, organic conversations when we'd hang out, I'd say, hey, um, have you thought about, and I would fill in the blank, I would just start throwing out some ideas to see, because we all heal and respond in different ways. You know, some of us, you know, when we open the pages of scripture, that's it for us. It's like, whoa, you just get sucked in. Um, Some of us maybe lean towards like, hey, if I go on a walk in the woods, I'd, that is incredibly filling and healing for me. So, we all respond differently. So, I was throwing out these different ideas that I've tried to see if anything might connect. I recommended counseling, therapy, spiritual direction, liturgical prayer, like all these different things. So, the person nodding their head seemed excited about a few of the, the things, like, yeah, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. This is years ago. This is two or three years ago. Just recently, I, I caught up with the, this person and asked, like, hey, how are things going? Um, not much has changed circumstantially, and you know, I, I said, well, have you I, I remember you saying, like anybody who's been who, through Huddle, this is Huddle 101, like, you said you were going to do this, remember you are going to, did you do it? So that's what I did, but in a really, more, a more gentle way than that. I said, hey, I remember you are going to maybe try this, try counseling, N- nothing, no movement and still stuck like, someone who it, what I thought was admitting they need rescued or saved or, or, you know, someone to reach out and pull them, the Holy Spirit. And there was no movement. And one of my greatest frustrations is when people proudly admit, either through their words or their actions, I don't need help, or I don't want that kind of help. For very, I don't know what the reasons are, but they just refuse to move. So, um, or maybe they've even admitted they need to be rescued. They've accepted the dinner invitation. But they just, all right, that step, there's no movement towards salvation. And that's really hard for me. All right, that, that makes, I, I am judgmental when I see that happen in people's lives. So sometimes it appears to be a flat refusal to try something that's uncomfortable. Like at this banquet, the king prepared like this amazing appetizer of sushi. And the person's like, I don't eat sushi. Like how many times has God tried to lead us into something? And we thought, I don't do that. I don't eat sushi. Maybe it's because you've never had it. Maybe it's because you were drunk and you, the first time you ever bought sushi was at like 2 a.m. at a 7-Eleven. It's not going to be good. Not going to be a good experience. So you think like, that's the only time I've done it. And you're, you refuse. Maybe you do it because you have maybe a bad experience the first time or the first 10 times. Or maybe you just don't want to try that. But that's what Christ is constantly going to try to do to us. He's going to try to lead, like bring us in to the things that are going to save us, rescue us, heal us. And it starts now in this life and not just in the next one. So now I'm talking about you guys. Think about that in your life and personally. Are you refusing to move because something might be weird or uncomfortable or unknown or mysterious? Again, I have a hard time with that because I'm kind of like, I'm the guy that like pushes people like go. Like I was that guy. Like if someone was they're like, I can't. I could actually see myself doing this, even though it would be really horrible. Like someone's getting ready to bungee jump and they're like, I can't do it. I would go, just push them. We've all seen the YouTube video, probably of someone doing that. Not good, but we need to move. We need to respond to the invitation. Henry Allen says, the world says when you were young, you were dependent and could not go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you'll be able to make your own decisions, go your own way, control your own destiny, Jesus has a different vision of maturity. It is the ability and the willingness to be led where you would rather not go. Beth Moore says there's nothing on earth more intoxicating than power. It's just a f- and we all, the older we get, the more powerful we get over our own circumstances. It's just a fact. So are you denying the need to be rescued? Are you too proud to admit it? Do you, Have you gained too much control and power over your own life to admit I need help. I need rescued. I need saved. I need to grab that branch that has been extended to me. What circumstances have fooled you into thinking you don't need rescue? Or if you've admitted rescue, like you've admitted, I I need Christ. I'm following him. Why have you stopped responding? Why have you stopped moving on the salvation journey? Because it's not like a light switch where you're like saved and therefore I'm now perfect and whole. It is a continual journey towards salvation and restoration. So you maybe you know, in the context of Restore Church, what's RC offer or ask of you that might enhance your salvation journey, but you've maybe stubbornly or maybe ignorantly, like you just haven't realized, you've just refused to try it or to participate in it. This is a journey. The invitations are continual. So the kind of stuff that will prevent you uh, from accepting the invitation and moving deeper into your salvation journey, it can be what I would call sneaky, normal. Uh, just normal stuff, like that just you can even think of. It's, it's like a subtle habit maybe you've re- acquired that's preventing the kind of salvation Christ has planned. Think about the story. People all the time back then bought oxen, bought fields, got married. Normal stuff but it can really, you know, Satan has a way of being really sneaky about um, inhibiting our journey towards salvation. So think about what in my life, maybe it's a habit, maybe it's even a personality trait. Um, So I'll give you a personal example, rather than just stand here in judgment of everybody else who's refusing to move deeper into the salvation journey. I am convicted of this as well when I read this story. Um, Anybody know much about Enneagram? the new, latest, hippest personality test. I don't know much about it. Um, I I skimmed through a book. Carrie knows a lot more about it than I have, or than I do. I've never taken the test, but she tells me I'm an eight on the Enneagram. And if you want to know, she showed me this cool thing on Instagram that I'm going to put up on the screen. It's called Enneagram Bingo. So eight, that's an eight. And then all those things around the eight, that describe a, a personality of an eight. And I got to tell you, the first time I read it, I was like, dang, that is that is eerily uh, accurate. There's one thing on there that's not true. Don't go to sleep angry. I can go to sleep angry. That's no problem. The funniest, not a problem at all. No problem sleeping. Everything else is pretty much true. I was The funniest one I thought was top left, gotten into a fight with a stranger. I'm like, crap. I do that all the time. Someone dropped their cup in the mall the other day when I was with my kid and like, no, not dropped it. Like threw it down, and soda went everywhere. I lit him up. I was like, "What do you think? What are you doing?" Like, like I was their dad. Like I just lit into him. I'm like, "Man, that is really convicting." I do that too much. That's an Enneagram Eight. It's a personality. All right, that I uh, that I've been given. It's filled with some strengths. It's filled with a lot of weaknesses. Um, i like I said, I've never taken the test, but she, and she showed that to me. And among some of the traits, you'll notice. there's... You can know, you, you know, I'm not gonna, we're gonna get dive too deep into it, but among some of the traits, you'll notice there's a particular kind of emotional weakness that an Enneagram 8 has. So I saw this quote that described it and I thought it was a good summation Enneagram 8s can put up an emotional wall, but it is placed between one's emotions and the self. So, in other words, 8s do not allow themselves to feel weaker emotions. Instead, we typically only let the emotions of anger, lust and desire for more than short periods. Like if any emotions are going to get in, it's going to be those. And it's only going to be a short amount of time. All right, the the rest of those emotions are naturally because of our personality we bury those. Just because I'm like, "Whoa, I read that and it was like, yep, that's true." So just because that's my personality, that doesn't make it okay. All right, when someone tells me like, "That's just me, you got to accept it." I'm like, "What are you 8 years old?" Like, are you just gonna stop maturing, stop moving, stop admitting that you need rescue and need saved? Just because it's my personality does not make it okay. Christ wants to rescue me from some of that, that personality. In particular, my wife noticed it's hard for me to be emotionally available to other people. Um she's the complete opposite. She's very emotionally available to other people. She heart like harmony is a really big deal to my life matters. To me, I'm like, I don't like, it makes them uncomfortable, I don't care. But her harmony matters. Empathy. Warmth. And I I look at the way, how emotionally available she is to other people, I'm like, I want some of that. How do I get that? Because I can't behave myself into that. It has to be saved. It has to be restored. It has to be healed. Um, My theology tells me that can happen because the great banquet parable shows me that I can. That Christ wants to give me a heart like his. Like that's I know in my head that it's possible and now I want to feel that in my heart like I want to feel healed and rewired and saved in a way that I could never do on my own so I I recently brought this epiphany up reading this story to my spiritual director and she said that I should spend the next few months reading the story of Jesus's arrest and crucifixion and emotionally placing myself into the story like what did Peter feel after he cut off the soldier's ear and Jesus rebuked him and then healed his ear. Like what were, what were Peter's emotions like? What was, what was Mary's emotions like when she was kneeling at the foot of the cross watching her son die a slow, horrible death, like placing myself emotionally in that story. And she's like, Do you, does that appeal to you? And I'm like, yeah, it does. Cause I feel like that might start to, it's kind of like the emotional equivalent of doing bicep curls or bench press. You're exercising on muscles that you've never really worked out before. You're like, oh, okay, I'm going to exercise my emotions. I exercise anger and lust and desire like those ones mentioned. Like, I'm, I got those down. It's the, uh, like, th- 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 those control me. The other ones, I'm like, I, be, I want empathy and warmth and harmony and mercy. Like, th- that's what I'm missing that I want. And just uh, Christ speaking... Through Carrie and through my spiritual director, is like, whoa, Epiphany, whoa, need for rescue and salvation. So I mean and look, like meeting with a Catholic spiritual director, I would have never imagined myself doing something like that five years ago. When you accept let's face it, it can sound a little weird and mystical. Like, spiritual director, what does that even mean? When you accept the invitation, Christ is going to serve you a salvation meal, and it will never be what you quite imagined. Eat it anyway. Be willing to experiment. Be willing to follow the rescue plan that he designed and not you designed. Epiphany happens when we do this. So my hope is that we will notice the epiphanies that Christ is trying to reveal to us this year. The invitation has been extended. Will you continue to attend all that Christ is inviting you into? My hope is for 2019, we will together. So speaking of invitation, a Super, uh, no worship gathering next week. Instead, we're having a Super Bowl party. Nay, a Super Bowl banquet. That's the way we're going to rephrase it. All right, an invitation has been extended to you. Will you accept? Now also, think about that. Maybe a friend has invited you to their Super Bowl banquet. I doubt that's what they're calling it. But maybe that's where Christ is leading you. Because we cannot take meals with others for granted. Most likely, Jesus is in the midst of that, and he's waiting to work. Will we continue to follow that? Let's pray, and then we're going to sing one more song.